Hello, and welcome to Asia Inscripted. I'm Vivian Su. And I'm Isabel Beleza. And this is U.S. Asia Institute's summer podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with first-hand knowledge of Asia. In this episode, Isabel and I speak to Ernie Bauer, one of the world's leading experts on the Asia-Pacific. Ernie is the founder and CEO of Bauer Group Asia, a business advisory firm that translates expertise, passion, and trust into value for the world's premier companies in the Asia-Pacific. Bauer Group Asia applies local expertise to help clients implement tailored market-based strategies that see them expand their business, overcome challenges, and attain results in Asia. In these clips, Ernie discusses business, investment, and economic growth in Southeast Asia. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. This episode begins with Ernie explaining his interests in Southeast Asia. I fell in love with Southeast Asia when I was in college and have had a career building institutions that focus on Southeast Asia. So when I got out of school, I helped build a group called the U.S. ASEAN Business Council in the mid-80s. And then I left there and created Bauer Group Asia in 2004. So that was about 20 years ago. And while I was at Bauer Group Asia, John Hamry at CSIS asked me to build the first Southeast Asia chair at a major U.S. think tank. And so we built the Southeast Asia chair at CSIS. And I was there for um, about six years um, and I'm still associated as, uh, as an advisor. So these are all institutions that, that help the United States and, and Southeast Asia work together more closely. Jumping straight into the topic of Southeast Asia, what do you think are the dominant industries or sectors that drive growth or have driven growth in Southeast Asia? Well, I think the way to think about that is, you know, where is Southeast Asia in its development? And so the things that are driving growth now are infrastructure. The region is, you know, it's 10 countries, almost 700 million people, um, and connecting people to cities and connecting countries to each other, and also soft infrastructure, telecom and, and uh, connectivity of, of people, people-to-people ties is where the growth is. So infrastructure, tech, a lot of technology innovation is also coming out of Asia. And then the basics, you know, energy, healthcare, and agriculture-related processing industries. That's where the heart of growth is in right. Southeast Asia. And do you think these drivers have changed in the last few decades, or have they been pretty stable? You know, I think they've changed somewhat. You know, I've, I've been doing this for 30 years, so the core industries are still the core industries. And I think What's changed is Southeast Asia has become less of a sort of a supplier to other markets, to Japan or Europe or the United States and now China. Uh, and now they've become themselves an, an incredible consumer. So Southeast Asia market is impressive. I mean, the, the middle class in Southeast Asia is, is nearing 300 million people. It's, it's a big number. And I think every company in the world that is of the size of thinking about global operations is is looking at Southeast Asia now. So among the countries of Southeast Asia, which countries have experienced the most growth? Well, I guess it depends what the time period is. I mean, you have to say Singapore, probably since its founding, has killed it. You know, they've done a great job developing over time. But the Singapore story has actually, you know, relative to high growth, has slowed down. In the last five years, which is, is probably more interesting, I think Vietnam has really outcompeted its neighbors because of its focus and because of the low level of economic development that it was coming from. 
So I think Vietnam is a, is a big success story, and Indonesia has done extremely well, as have the Philippines. So following up on that, why have some of these countries experienced so much success in the growth? Is that a result of resources? Is it a result of government initiatives? Or what is the driver behind those yeah. countries? I think part of it is geopolitical or, or geoeconomic, let's say that. The, the center of the universe for the 21st century, whether you're talking about economics and economic growth or, or security, is where the Indian and Pacific Oceans meet, and that is Southeast Asia. So they are ground zero. That's important because Southeast Asia is where all the major powers of the world are meeting to compete and to, to grow, and that's where they're finding growth. And growth in Asia sort of emanates out of Southeast Asia. So it is the center of economic architecture, like the ASEAN trade agreements, the East Asia Summit, its members are the core of APEC, and ASEAN is the core of emerging security architecture as well. It's a pretty important place for the United States, and, and I think because of that, because of its, its location and because of the nature of economic development, that's the reason it's grown so much. And we can get into some, some interesting details like intra-ASEAN investment and ASEAN companies that have become, you know, not national champions, but ASEAN-level companies. And I think, in particular, Southeast Asia has fed on and will continue to feed on foreign direct investment. I don't know if you realize this, but the Americans have 10 times more investment in Southeast Asia than they do in India, and about three times more investment in Southeast Asia than they do in China. So the headline countries that you think of for big economies in Asia, uh, actually Southeast Asia as an aggregate group, as a 10-country grouping, is where we put our money. And looking more into the historical development of this economic growth, can you tell us a little bit more about the key agreements, treaties, or deals between countries in ASEAN that promoted or furthered economic interconnectivity? I mean, I think ASEAN was formed in 1967 in Bangkok, mainly for political and security issues. At the time, it had five members. It grew to 10 countries. And still, uh, I think security and political issues were at least, you know, at the side of the table when they decided to do that. Um, what's happened over the last decade or, or last 20 years, really, is economics came to the forefront. And there was a question of whether ASEAN economic cooperation would be something that the countries should invest heavily in or they should fear it because they would be competing with each other. And I think uh, the leaders, the, the new leaders, have recognized that they have to work as a team to compete as a global powerhouse. And I think that strategy is not comprehensive. I mean, it, it's had fits and starts, but overall it's, it's paid great dividends for the, for the region. So the ASEAN bloc, in the future, do you see these countries going forward in the global markets as a bloc together? Do you see them kind of separating, going their own ways as each country experiences different growth? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I, the reality is, in business today, that all strategy and narratives. When I, what I mean by narrative is if you're a big company and you want to do business in ASEAN, you have to be local. So you have to be able to tell the story of what does my company mean to Indonesians? How do we influence the lives and, and make the lives better for Indonesians? And it's got to be very local. So in that sense, I think companies, countries are competing themselves, but using the association with ASEAN to try to enhance their advantage. And I think they've done pretty well at that. But it has slowed down ASEAN economic integration, the pace of it. And also, 
uh, important things like investment rules that if they truly make investment and trade rules comprehensively binding, uh, Southeast Asia would take off like multiples of the growth that it has seen so far. But they don't have the confidence, not all of them have the confidence and trust to, to go ahead and say, we're all in, let's compete together, because they are competing with each other as well. And so for those countries that don't have that confidence, how do you see them possibly building it in the future? I mean, I think it's growth. I mean, I, I, a good example might be Cambodia, uh, which was, you know, relatively a tiny economy and had gone through some pretty horrible things politically in its recent past. But they've come out still with rough politics. But economically, Cambodia is starting to gain confidence because they are starting to see foreign direct investment accumulate over years. And the economy, you know, even though off a very small base, is starting to grow. That economic growth gives countries confidence to do more with ASEAN and have more confidence to commit to ASEAN tariff reduction and investment rules and people-to-people immigration rules that will really benefit um, not only Cambodia, but the other countries. And so shifting our conversation more into current events and what a lot of our listeners were probably very interested in, how has the U.S.-China trade war affected investment and economic growth in Southeast Asia? In a couple ways. Uh, I'd say overall, it's been good for Southeast Asia so far. The part of what was happening anyway in terms of the way companies work and the, and the global economy works was that supply chains in Asia were changing direction. This is before the U.S. and China really butted heads on trade. And the reason for that was that China labor costs were getting higher and that um, uh, China was playing, is, is playing a different role. Uh, more as a market now than as a source of of cheap labor and and cheap goods. So there was a a shift anyway, but the U.S.-China trade war, which is not going away anytime soon, has driven companies to speed up plans to change those supply chains, and that's driven massive amounts of new investment into places like Vietnam. The Philippines has benefited from this quite a bit. And companies are looking to put new money into places like Thailand and Indonesia and Malaysia as well. And do you see this upward trend investment continuing in the future? I think so. Uh, When you look at demographics and directions of markets and you think about 20 or 30 year timeframes, Southeast Asia's demographic is incredibly um, promising. In other words, they have very strong, with the exception of a, a couple of smaller countries like Singapore, is, looks more like Japan, for instance. But Southeast Asia has a lot of young people who are moving into a more prosperous, sort of middle class, uh, urban, connected lifestyle. And so I expect Southeast Asia to, be, to, to have continued uh, growth uh, at the current or higher rates than it does right now. And that China's integration into the global economy and the regional economy has been a great boon for that. So I guess building on that, you work with a lot of companies who are working to do business in Southeast Asia. Is there a way for citizens in Southeast Asian countries to benefit from the growth that these companies bring? Yes. This is one of the great success stories, and it's one of the things that I'm most proud of you know, in my career because I think that having been involved in this sort of in a leadership role, helping companies think about how to do business in Southeast Asia for the last three decades. I think that companies now are much more cognizant that they have to make an impact on countries and people and communities. And so what that means is that 
that companies that are doing well in Southeast Asia are thinking about these questions about what, by being in Indonesia or being in Malaysia, what do we mean to Malaysians and Indonesians? And so um, American companies, I think, are especially good at this. They're investing in communities. They're investing in training. Southeast Asians are now leaders of most of these companies. You want to localize your team, right? So ideally, you'd have a CEO from Malaysia leading your Malaysian company. And I think that used to be sort of a far-fetched idea 20 years ago. Today, it's the norm. So the transfer of technology, the, the investment in education, the investment in infrastructure and communities that happens when American companies work in Southeast Asia is absolutely amazing. And it's a story that's not well told. It's not told comprehensively enough. I have a question that I'm personally very interested mm-hmm. in. This economic development, what does that mean for the environment within Southeast Asia? I think that companies in general are more aware today than ever before that the way they produce what they make, uh, even if that's energy or plastics or or food, mm-hmm. the the impact that their processes have on the environment are who they are. They own it. They have to own it. And I, I find very few companies now uh, sort of in denial, as we, we may have seen 10 years ago. And so because of that and because of transparency and social media has helped with this as well, companies are trying to be very careful about their supply chain, sustainability, much more serious investments in sustainability. It's not a throwaway word. It's, it means an investment. It means constant adaptation of processes and um, monitoring of, your, of how you work. And you, you don't have a, a good story to tell to your global consumers or to the people that you're working with in a country if you're creating massive amounts of pollution or you're, you're killing rivers. And I think the companies that are still struggling with this tend not to be American companies. They come more from other countries who are learning uh, and investing uh, for the first time in, in Southeast Asia or, or are newer to it than Americans, say, or Japanese or Europeans. Um, so a lot of the, the high-profile big problem companies in the last five years would would have come from um, actually from within Asia. All right, so going forward, how do you expect to see ASEAN's role on the global stage evolving within the next 10 years or within the next 50 years? Well, I'm I'm one of these rare guys in Washington who's an, an optimist about ASEAN. I think a lot of the foreign policy people, you know, people who do security and foreign policy have been pretty frustrated with ASEAN because it moves slowly. And it moves slowly because it has a, this consensus-based uh, policy-making uh, structure, which is right for Southeast Asia, but it doesn't work for people who think about hard power and the alliance system in Asia. A lot of American strategic thinkers get very frustrated with ASEAN. I see it a different way, and, and probably because I've been working on it for a long time. I think ASEAN, that consensus-based, grass, you know, grassroots up, it takes 10 of us to agree sort of approach, actually creates a stronger foundation that takes longer to build. But if you look at the foundation of regional architecture, whether it's economic, security, or political, ASEAN is a great, strong base for that because it's consensus-based. And because they don't take this sort of hard power 
you know, strategic thrust kind of approach that the Americans or, or maybe the Japanese or the Chinese do. They are the place that will unify Asia. They will drive growth. They will drive stability. So I'm most hopeful for Asian peace and prosperity in the 21st century uh, being based on, on an ASEAN foundation. No one's going to agree to follow China that, you know, and have China dictate sovereignty and, and rules. No one would agree to the United States doing that. But they will agree on what you can agree to within an ASEAN context. That's powerful. Shifting to a look at individual countries within ASEAN, do you see certain countries becoming global leaders on the stage? I think some ASEAN countries are already global leaders. Singapore has clearly established leadership in innovation, um, sort of quality of living, um, city management. I think it's a world leader on that stage. Thailand, I think, has become sort of a world leader on tourism. I think other ASEAN countries, I think Indonesia's time is coming (laughs) You know, I think Indonesia has been very inwardly focused, but it's that wide archipelago that stretches from Moscow to London or New York to to L.A., 17,000 islands. That is the archipelago that connects the Indian and Pacific Oceans. And I think the everyone's waiting for the Indonesians to find uh, the global voice. And I think they've looked at it. Um, Marty Natalagawa, when he was foreign minister got into that a bit. Um, I think it's coming. Countries like Indonesia and Brazil, Mexico, I think will have a big influence in the latter half of the 21st century as they assert themselves as very big countries who are really in the same ballpark with the Americans, the Chinese, and the Indians. When that happens, it'll be a good thing for the world, I think. So we like to end all of our episodes with a fun question. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about your most memorable moment from a trip to Southeast Asia? I think the most meaningful moment for me was when I was a young student at at Colgate, and I was a pre-med student, and I'm Ernest Lee Bauer IV, so the first three all went to medical school and were doctors, so I was going to be a doctor. And I was in Burma, standing on a temple out in this floodplain in the middle of, of Burma, and this was 1983. We weren't, we weren't supposed to be out there. We'd rented motorcycles and kind of got lost, and we'd overstayed our the visa, the seven-day limit. But I was standing out there looking out across this vast floodplain scattered with temples, and I just I was absolutely speechless because it was so beautiful. And behind me, I just heard this voice in, like, Oxford English say, American, are you? And I was like, who is that? Because I looked back, and there was just a couple monks sitting there, like, in, in these glowing, you know, orange robes, and I'm sure it wasn't those guys. So, I, But there was no one else around, and so one of the monks said, yeah, I, that was me. Uh, you're from America? I said, yes. And he said, we need your help. This country needs your help. We're locked in a time machine, and we need contact from you. We need pens. And I said, pens? He said, like, ballpoint pens and batteries. <laughs> and I thought, Oh my, I just had chills. I was, and, I, and I realized at that point that I could do a lot more good for a lot more people by focusing on trying to bring the understanding of Southeast Asia to a new level of the United States and trying to help Southeast Asians understand the Americans better because they thought my friend that I was traveling with and I were TV characters from an old show called Chips, which is like a motorcycle, <laughs> uh, two guys on motorcycles in L.A., cops. But that moment motivated me to switch directions. 
I, I got out of school, built the U.S. Aussie and Business Council, built Bauer Group Asia, built the Southeast Asia chair at CSIS, and I do what I absolutely love to do, and I, I think of that monk all the time. I answered his call, so, and that, that's why this kind of work is really meaningful to me. That, that's probably my most meaningful moment. It's a fantastic story. Thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much again for speaking with us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org slash asiaunscripted, where you will find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find US Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979, on Twitter at USAsiaInstitute, and on Instagram at us.asia.institute.